And this is what actually prompted the thing that I'm going to ask, because you dropped some very controversial, I guess, knowledge in our group chat yesterday, Lena, which uh-huh. is to claim that our recording bots are in fact otters and not bears. Yes. Yeah, so I was they sure watching. Look like bears. Yeah, I was watching some friends at the table content, and uh, they were talking about Craig, and uh, the the main person. Uh, oh my god! I listened. I've listened to almost all of their content. What's his name? Austin uh, was talking about how he's like, "Hey, did you know that it's not actually a bear?" And instantly, I was like, "What? What are you talking <laughs> about?" And he's like, yeah, and he pulls the picture into the thing, because this was actually a, a video one that I usually don't watch those, but they didn't have the audio version out. And he's like, that looks like a bear, right? No, it's an otter. And I'm just like, what? I have to immediately post this in the group chat because it's going <laughs> it's gonna mess with people. But then, you know, you look at the the kind of grayish one and you're like, is that like a is that like a gray otter? Or is that like a beaver now? Like now I don't know. No, here, here, look. I don't buy it. I don't care what the people who made Craig say. That's a bear. I'll believe that face is a dog before I believe it's an otter. Yeah. Don't mess with me. (laughs) But yeah, uh, I don't know. Friends at the Table, great uh, real play podcast with uh, socialists and and they're, they're cool. They should make a fake play podcast some someday. I'd like to know what that sounds like. Taskbot plays D&D. Yeah. <laughs> Telling jokes in binary. Yeah. Uh, Brian David Gilbert still shows up for some reason. Um, <laughs> I don't know who that is. That's oh. The only person who does tabletop gaming on YouTube who I even know exists because he does all those unraveled videos where he's like, which Pokemon can you eat? And I'm like, all right, I have to watch it. Um, <laughs> I have to. <laughs> Laser targeted content. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, uh, but what did that knowledge drop remind you of, Dan? It felt like you were working towards another point. No, the whole thing was just like, I, I, I didn't have a greater point. It's just that I've gone this entire time calling Craig and GR bears. And then suddenly there's this assertion that in fact they're otters. And I don't know, that's a, that's too big of a change. I think for me to accept. <laughs> is that from, is that from the company or from the creator? Directly? I mean, like I said, they uh, this was just me watching another set of podcasters uh, talk about the bots that we use, and they said that it was from that. That's the it was actually an otter. I mean, I don't know. I'm just Austin wouldn't lie to me. That's that's <laughs> just <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, I take know. I take issue with that. Um, <laughs> but speaking of things <laughs> worth taking issue with. your number one labor podcast we are entirely listener supported thank you so much for any money you might be giving us on patreon if you're not in the discord already get in there it's free if you are a patron and you don't have stickers yet message us on patreon for your stickers and if you want to help the show a little bit more leave a five-star review on apple podcasts that says craig is a bear damn it uh (laughs) that's right 
But uh, speaking of some fucking uh, knowledge bombs, we want to drop one on you, which is Hudson Workers United has actually finally won their election after over a year. These are the workers that we had a chance to talk to on episode 69. Nice. nice. And you might remember <laughs> that their voices were significantly altered because we had to protect their identities. Uh, but now after an insane amount of time, they have finally counted the votes and in a, in a major victory, uh, better than a supermajority, they have secured a union at Hudson Legal and the North American Immigration Law Group. Yeah, I mean, they actually only had, they had the uh, the Ithaca manager there to make yes. sure to be the one vote against. Uh, there were uh, 88 people who had uh, voted, and 87 of them voted in favor of the union with 32 challenge ballots, which did not matter. Fuck Hudson Legal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it does show, like, it does help explain, like, why Hudson was so desperate to enact, you know, frivolous legal suit after legal suit to delay the count. Because, mm-hmm. like, if it's that near unanimous, like, they clearly knew they were going to lose. And we're just like, well, if we can just prevent the votes from ever being counted, <laughs> then the election well, won't count. <laughs> they were supposed to be counted in January. Yeah. And they just finished counting on the 24th or 25th. Or something like that? Something like that. The the end of July. (laughs) Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, there hasn't really been, like, a whole lot of reporting uh, about this election drive. I had to find the vote count on the NLRB's website itself. Yeah. So, like, most of what we've had to hear about, you know, the win and, and the whole process has come from the union themselves, which, I mean, that's a great source. It's just that it's it's not a ton of information. So, like... Uh, obviously, you know, going forward now that they've they finally won their election, finally had the NLRB be like, hey, look, they actually did vote in favor of the union. Now, unfortunately, I mean, we, we, we have this big time. win, but I got to put the big butt at the end of it, which is now they have to fight for a contract. And considering Hudson's actions so far, dragging out the process of the union vote this long in a case they knew they were going to lose... Like, I have to imagine the struggle for a first contract is going to be really huge. So I, we'll, we'll absolutely keep posted on this. And I think the big thing will be, like, uh, one of the like they're almost certainly going to have to strike, I would imagine, to mm-hmm. force the company to the table. So if we hear anything like that, we'll absolutely make sure to let everybody know and know what ways that people can, you know, show their solidarity with these workers as they fight to get a fair union contract. Yeah, and I mean, like, they're unionized with the United Electrical Workers, and so I think if we were to draw a parallel, I think, if I mean, with the episode that is going to be released later this week for the Patreon feed, our Rank and File Part 3, it is a little comparable to the Burgerville workers, I think, in the way that they were going to require a lot of direct action, that they're, you know, they there was a five-year-long process. This They've been doing this organizing for, I actually don't know how long but it's been a really almost a year of of this whole process and i mean i assume it's going to be at least a year or two before they get their contract because of the way that they're you know hudson is going to fight against them yeah probably so you know we'll keep our eye on it and we will keep our listeners posted on you know anything all any new developments in the future during their negotiations but Continuing on with our follow-ups this week, we've got a very, you know, exciting news story that I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard about. We now have the first 
unionized Trader Joe's store in the country, folks. Last Thursday, July 28th, workers at the Trader Joe's in Hadley, Massachusetts, had their election. They finally got their votes counted. And the union came away with a 45 to 31 victory, just under 60% of the votes. Uh, and that'll bring them to be the, you know, the first unionized store in the chain. And, and this is you know yet another victory in the recent string of wins for unions at places that had previously been considered you know, ununionizable. Like we are getting so many more unions in retail this year than we've had. I mean, you know, REI, fucking the Apple stores, like Verizon stores, and now Trader Joe's. Like this is becoming quite the wave. And hopefully like, you know, this one is going to be the first in a series of several, not only throughout the retail like sphere as a whole, but also specifically at Trader Joe's as a chain. Yeah. I think that hopefully this revitalizes the whole foods uh, oh, union yeah, absolutely. because this, they're so similar in business model that this can be a really great example for some of those workers who've actually been organizing for years and years and years. Uh, and this might give them a little bit of fire to re uh, reorganize at some of their stores, which I think would be really cool. But I mean, that's just speculation. Yeah, I mean, hopefully between this and the energy that we've seen at Amazon, which is also the owner of Whole Foods, uh, but right. this energy at this this uh, Trader Joe's, this successful unionization campaign, has already inspired workers at two other stores in Minneapolis and Boulder, Colorado, to file for their union elections as well, which is really exciting. So we're already seeing yeah. the first tendrils of that reaching out. Uh, the company did try to stymie this with a lot of the typical standard union-busting tactics, captive audience meetings, one-on-ones, regional management coming in to tell workers to vote no, et cetera, et cetera, illegal discipline. Uh, but uh, the workers managed to to stay strong and stay inoculated against the bullshit, uh, despite being a relatively small independent union and not necessarily having the resources that a lot of larger unions would have. Yeah, absolutely. Like, that's another thing about this win that is, is very exciting is that, like, these workers took the energy, you know, coming out of the of, of the the first couple of years of the pandemic and like seeing the stark revelations of how the company that they'd been working for clearly doesn't care about them as much as they thought that they did. Uh, and 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 turn that into a really pretty fast turnaround on building their union and then to to winning this election. Uh, and and so like this is I, I think a model for people at other similar chains to really follow along in the footsteps also, of course, with the ALU. And one, cause one of the things that I think made this win possible, as we've discussed on, you know, the rank and file series we've been doing as well as just, you know, as part of the spirit of the show is that be part of the reason that being an independent union here, even though it came with some issue, some like, you know, potential downsides as far as, you know, resources, legal expertise, that sort of thing it meant that the workers themselves were in charge of the campaign. And as we've you know, seen time after time after time, that is such an invaluable thing to making a union drive successful is actually having the people who are going to be benefiting from the union being the people who are actually running the campaign. Mm -hmm. and, and so like after the win, the union put out a statement saying there's no Trader Joe's without the crew. We must embrace this challenge head on together and negotiate a contract that reflects the values Trader Joe's has long claimed to espouse. And one of the things that was, I, I will, this is probably the most surprising part of the story for me. Uh, I wasn't too surprised that the workers won their election. Cause like after, you know, reading a bunch of the interviews and, and see, hearing from some of the organizers, I mean, it seemed like they had a pretty 
good like uh, like system that they'd put together uh, to rally you know their coworkers. But in response to the victory, unlike so many of these giant companies that we followed in campaign after campaign after campaign, right after the win, Trader Joe's actually came out and immediately said they're they're ready to sit down with the union immediately on on negotiating a first contract. Now, of course, that doesn't mean they're going to put forward a good contract. That doesn't mean they're going to bargain in good faith. But it is a step more than we've seen from so many other companies like Apple, Starbucks, Chipotle, Amazon. And so, I mean, even even if it they try and stall the table or they prevent some they present some shitty option, just the fact that they came out and said they just accepted the fact that the union won and that they're going to bargain with them. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, given our horrific work environment here in the US, that is actually a pretty big standout compared to so many of these other elections. Yeah, it reminds me of when I first got to go to the table and uh and try to bargain and the one of the first things that the or uh, the Littler Mendelssohn lawyer put on the table was like, "All right, so we we want to put right to work inside of your contract <laughs> and used that as like a bargaining chip against the union." And so, I mean, like they can say they want to sit down at the table all all they want, but if they start pulling shit like that, which is very likely in my opinion, uh, it could be a bit of a protracted process. For sure. Yeah, I mean, well, in saying that they proposed to use current union contracts for other grocery store workers in the New England area as a model, uh, they're basically saying, like, uh, okay, yeah, we're scared, and instead of, like, deciding to fight this full force, what we're going to try and do is just, like, only accept, you know, as many concessions from the company uh as like other grocery stores in the area have already deemed as acceptable, which uh, is kind of an interesting tactic. But I feel like when you have workers who are breaking through as the first unionized store in an independent union, like they're, they're not going to be happy with, with what the other maybe more complacent unions in the region are getting. That's exactly what I was thinking because, I mean, if they're trying to do it based on grocery store contracts, I know some of those are multi-tiered contracts. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there are like some concessionary things that have been bargained by, uh, you know, like maybe UFCW or some some other more businessy unions. And I mean, if they're trying to use those as models, I mean, I think that these workers are going to be like, uh, well, maybe that's a starting point. But if we start there and move forward to something that actually works for us, that, you know, is going to actually be a good contract that they will get, hopefully, at least. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll see. We'll obviously we'll have to follow this because that's the thing. Like, it's one of the unfortunate things about the process in the US it's like you've got that victory of getting your winning your union election and then that's fantastic it's a huge step it's it's absolutely important and then you have to go do it all over again to win your first contract. So Well, that's what we always say and that's what it, that's what good organizers always say is that, you know, this is not the victory. This is the beginning of right. our movement. This is the solidification of us as the union and now we move forward with the power that we've created in this organizing drive. Yeah, and I mean in that vein, like uh one of the veteran worker organizers uh at this store in Hadley, uh, Meg Yosef, uh, was, was talking to the Washington post, uh, about their win and specifically said that, that, that they hope that this 
win will expand beyond just their store saying, quote, I think our victory can be replicated. Even if we're living in different areas of the country, the crew experience is universal. We're all dealing with the same issues, pay, benefits, safety. I think we all have a lot in common, end quote. And yeah, I mean, we've already seen the energy from this spread to Minneapolis and Boulder. And I mean, with this win, I don't see any reason why it can't go a lot further than that. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm really, really hoping that this is the start of another movement similar to like, you know, the scope of the, the Starbucks workers United and we'll absolutely be continuing to follow these folks. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of scopes of organizing (laughs) worth following, let's talk about an entire country's national strike winning its demands. So this is taking us down to, uh, Panama, Uh, where there has been nearly a month of major working-class mobilizations across the country. And in response, the Panamanian government has actually agreed to some of the workers' demands during negotiations, both with unions and with other organizations. So on July 24th, the first agreement between representatives of the major groups leading the national strike and the government of Panada, uh, and the government of Panama. I did a portmanteau of Panama and Canada there. Uh, (laughs) Where uh, And the state actually agreed to use price caps, subsidies, and tariff reductions to lower the prices of key commodities needed by workers by 30%. And to facilitate this, the government has agreed to present a bill within the next 30 days to the National Assembly to increase the power of the state's regulatory agencies to control prices. So, I mean, like, I'm not going to – Panama is not like a socialist country or anything, but when you have a bottom-up set of demands and they get passed, you get like common-sense socialist ideas like price control and subsidized industry. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, that for me is like, if you're an American and you're listening to our show, and most of our listeners are, I know, but Mm -hmm. like, you know, we have an enormous inflation problem here, and the response from our government has been, what if we made things worse for most of you? Right. <laughs> then you wouldn't have any money to spend on things, and then theoretically prices would go down, which isn't actually how the economy works, but it's the way that they have found to say that they're fighting inflation while actually doing nothing that would impact, you know, the rich and the actual members of the ruling class, whereas... Not that organizing a national strike is easy. So Lord knows we've talked a million times on here before about how that requires an enormous amount of, of, of organization and background work to do. But like this, I think, is so important as an example of Panama. I mean, we talked about the same thing in Ecuador and has been happening in other countries. You know, these strong labor movements being at the core of these these uprisings, as well as major, you know, indigenous groups, socialist parties, communist groups. Being able to come together and mobilize working people en masse have been able to force through measures that actually address inflation in ways that actually help the majority of people. Because, like, you know, I'm sure that members of the government in Panama had been like, look, hey, we'd love to solve these 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 price problems that everybody's facing but look that's just the free market and the difference is that the people in Panama because there's that level of organization because there's that labor movement there because there's these movements of you know indigenous groups they're able to come together and basically tell the government yeah so uh, how about you lower the price of stuff or we just don't let the comp- the country, you know, do anything. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, and this was the first of two points that they made concessions on because on Wednesday, the 27th, a couple days after, the workers reached a further agreement with the right-wing government on fuel prices, and the government agreed to cap the price of fuel around the country at 325 per gallon, uh, using $200 million in subsidies to lower the prices. And uh, this is, I mean, that's still a very high uh price point for for fuel sure. but mm-hmm. uh but i mean i i imagine that that it was going to be much much worse without these subsidies and and like these are the sorts of things that you can do with these rolling strikes which basically that's what when they say mobilizations they're no, i mean like it's it is there are some non-labor groups like dan was mentioning you know there's socialist groups doing protests and stuff like that but one of the ways that you can kind of look at this is a little bit like a bunch of rolling strikes and protests. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's how they have created this level of power that is able to create concessions from this right-wing government. Yeah, well, and yeah. you have leaders from these organizations giving absolutely no fucking sign that they're willing to slow down just because some of their demands have been met. So you have Saul Mendez, who is the general secretary of the Single Union of Construction Workers, which uh, has a uh, abbreviation SunTrax. I'm sure that works in Spanish. I have no idea what it stands for, uh, which is the actually the largest union leading the strikes. And he said that the agreement was good, but more demands still must be met. And then we have a quote from Fernando Abrego, the general secretary of the Association of Teachers of Panama, who told Presna Latina, quote, every achievement made on the single dialogue table is the result of the struggle in the streets for a better Panama. And I really love the, the, the constant reinforcement that it is, it is that exact struggle in the streets that produces these results. And at no point should we ever get caught up in just like some around the table bickering. You know, everything comes back to the actual actions of the people who are affected by this stuff. Yeah, like absolutely. That's one of the things that I've really appreciated about this movement as well as like some of the other ones that we've covered similarly, again, like the one in Ecuador, where so many times like in huge opposition to what we often see here in the U.S., when there have been victories won by these groups, it's not pointing at this was won because of one person who's like mm-hmm. the president of one union or some politician who caved or whatever and, and, and decided to it's every time the groups have been like, this only happened because the people mobilized and right. th- like to reinforce that it's like the class struggle doesn't stop. And it like, it, it, if you win a couple concessions, it doesn't mean everybody should go home. It means you continue until you win everything. Because again, it's, it, these demands are recognized not as nice to haves, they're, they're demands because they're necessities. And right. that's one of the things that I think they've done a really good job in both Panama and Ecuador and in many other countries that have had similar protests of, of emphasizing that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think also in the United States, we do say things like, oh, it was, you know, this group that mobilized and then went to the table and agreed with this higher up. And and it really does erase the the actual people on the ground who created the conditions for for those concessions in the first place. Yeah. So so, I mean, having gotten uh, these these two wins out of the uh, the Panamanian government, there are still six planks left in their platform that are unaddressed as of right now. So uh, the the issues that they're still trying to get some traction on are the freezing of the price of medicine, freezing of the price of electricity, increasing 
increasing spending on education, increasing measures to fight corruption, increasing funding to resolve the crisis of the Social Security Fund, and establishing an independent cross-sector monitoring body to oversee the reforms. So, I mean, these are no small uh, uh, asks, in particular, like freezing the prices of medicine and electricity is, is going to sting the pocketbooks of some Panamanian capitalists and ruling class members quite badly. Uh, but I have nothing, honestly, at this point, it's hard to believe that the Panamanian people can be stopped. Like it, it, it <laughs> yeah. seems like they, they have too much organizational ability and, and power at this point. Yeah. Like, because like they're in response to these, uh, victories, these, the concessions that the government has been forced into by the popular mobilization, there were some of the like big roadblocks of some of the biggest highways that the people had been doing have been subsequently lifted as part of like, well, okay, you gave us that concession. We'll lift this roadblock, but it's not the, you gave us one concession. Now everybody can go home and we'll let the experts sit around a table. It's okay. Good. Now we got six more things Mm -hmm. and we're going to keep having marches and we're going to keep having protests while you guys negotiate on these other six things. And then if those get agreed to, then maybe we can stop all this. So yeah, I mean, the whole thing is, is really inspiring. And like specifically, I would point out that demand to freeze the price of electricity. That's a huge one because like, I I don't know about, you know, the specifics of a lot of the, the material conditions for the workers in in Panama, but I've been reading like stories from like places like Brazil and, and other parts of Latin America where because of the increases in fuel prices, where the price of electricity has soared to an absolutely absurd percentage of people's like income. Like I think in Brazil, they were saying that for some working class people, now their electricity bill is something like 25% of their total budget because of how high it is. Wow. That's That's insane. Yeah. Well, in the idea of, you know, the de-neoliberalization of Panama, which is the goal of a lot of these workers, we are going to Absolutely. move to another international story where we are seeing the extreme li- neoliberalization of their labor. And this is in Ukraine, where there is currently the ongoing, uh, you know, war between Russia and Ukraine and, well, in the United States and Russia in that way as well. Uh, and... Ukraine's parliament voted earlier this past week to basically gut the country's labor law and throw a vast majority of the workforce into basically at-will employment, uh, zero with zero protections. It's it, basically the U.S. model. They are trying yeah. to turn what still a country that still had some of the Soviet-era labor protections into what is you know basically a neoliberal hellhole. Yeah. So, yeah. so this, uh, this change in policy, this new law, uh, strips any workers that work at small, quote unquote, small and medium enterprises of these protections. And that is about 70% of the laborers in Ukraine. So all of these 70% of Ukraine's laborers, uh, are placed on individual contracts with their employer. They have, uh, no authority or rather trade unions have, uh, no authority anymore to veto workplace dismissals. And so now most workers, I guess, whether formerly unionized or not are now at will workers that can be fired at any time for any reason with no protections. And then of course the Ukrainian ruling party's justifications for this, uh, are as uh, Ayn Randian, Friedmanian, uh, Hayekian as you can get, uh, saying quote, extreme overregulation of employment, 
contradicts the principles of market self-regulation and modern personnel management, which is to say uh, our business consultants from the USA and Great Britain have told us that we need to fuck over our workers more if we want to be a quote-unquote modern European democracy, whatever the fuck that means. Yeah, like... And they also, in the same time, they passed another bill that allows companies to hire workers on zero-hour contracts, which is a term that I may not be as familiar, like on in the U.S., but is very common in, like, especially the U.K., but also other parts of the EU. Which basically, it's like kind of like contract work, where now it basically allows Ukrainian businesses to reduce the number of full-time employees that they have and instead hire people on these zero-hour contracts where they have like no guaranteed future of employment. They're employed at will, often part-time, and basically at the permanent precarity uh, with regards to their labor conditions, which makes it very easy for companies to set up like two-tier systems, somewhat similar to what we see a lot of times in like the U.S. tech sector, where you'll have this small cadre of like well-paid mm-hmm. permanent employees and then this huge mass of of contract workers who are paid dog shit and have no benefits uh, yeah. it's weird it's like capitalism rebuilding its class structure but in microcosm but <laughs> right it reminds me a little bit of uh of piecework in that like you know you do technically you know you keep getting work from this place but really it's just whenever they decide that you know they need yeah. you and that's it well, isn't it like the reason longshoremen unions in the U.S. are some of the most militant yes. is because this is how labor used to work for them before mm-hmm. they had collective bargaining? Capitalists would show up and be like, you, 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 and you, and those were the guys that got work that day, which is insane. Uh, yeah, and it looks like exactly. you know the, the Ukrainian government uh, has, has no interest in going anywhere but right back to that situation because you have a quote from one of their uh, members of parliament, Danilo Hetmensev, who wrote on Telegram a week before the bill passed saying, quote, this is what happens in a state if it's free, European, and market-oriented. Otherwise, the country will be traveling with one leg on an express train to the EU and with another inside a Soviet-era train going in the other direction, which... That's not a mixed metaphor. That's a metaphor <laughs> salad. And also, like, a, a, a weird, you know, it, it's weird when Americans try to say that, like, Russia is still the USSR. But when Ukrainian politicians say it, it completely fucking blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the whole thing is just, it's, I, I mean, it, it's awful. It's tragic. It's terrible for the Ukrainian workers. And it's, because this is one of those things. I mean, you hear people talk about this all the time, with, uh, this phenomena that people will talk about, like disaster capitalism, like, you know, Naomi Klein's term for it. It gets thrown around a lot. Mm-hmm. It really is more, like, descriptive than it is something new. It's, it's the profit motive finding a way, <laughs> more or less, like finding a way to, to take advantage of any situation. And it's just awful that, like, the Ukrainian workers are caught in the middle of this because all this is going to be used for is for, like the oligarchs that are already stealing a huge amount of money from the Ukrainian workers and the Ukrainian state are now just going to be able to do that even easier. Well, and, and I and, imagine that it also is going to facilitate America's takeover a lot of a lot of the oh, industry, absolutely. which is going to be really popular uh, with the destruction of so much stuff due to this war. The United States is going to do a program where they're like, oh, we're going to rebuild. And then they're just going to come in and, and expropriate all of the resources for capital. 
Yeah, I mean, there's already been discussions about a big IMF bailout, which will, of course, come with strings. And, you know, Germany and, and the, the other, like, and France have already been moving in imperialistically into Ukraine over the last 30 years anyways. Yeah. That's a big part of why they wanted to do integration with the EU so much. And this is all just going to make that so much easier and make the process so much worse for Ukrainian workers. And, it, yeah, it's it's an awful situation because, like, now, in addition to all of the awful conditions being faced by Ukrainian workers, because their country's at war and like the eastern half of it has been largely destroyed by artillery barrages from both sides, like now, in addition, I mean, what is it like seven million displaced? I think it's uh, at this point. It's an it's it's huge. It's like so many people have have been forced to you know leave their homes, and now. They don't even have, like, when they do get a job to go back to or whatever, they have none of the union protections that they had before. And Mm -hmm. all with this cover of this bullshit anti-Russia, anti-communist thing of, oh, if we have worker protections, that that means you like Putin or the— like some or some other not it doesn't make any sense but because of the hyper you know the the hyper nationalism around this war like it gets sold that way and the thing is like this isn't even the first time they tried to pass these bills they tried to pass these bills before the war happened and they were stopped because there were enormous trade union protests but now because the war is on most if not all protests are banned so mm-hmm. the trade unions can't even come out to like oppose this because they'd be arrested for having an illegal protest. Well, and they also didn't, they ban most of the opposition, like all of the decent opposition parties are all banned now too. So it's like, there's no real political pushback against this anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's awful. It's a horrible mess. It, uh, you know, feel horrible for the, the workers of Ukraine who are caught in the middle of all this and whose lives have, you know, largely been upended in some cases destroyed. So uh, it's awful, and the U.S. is playing an extraordinarily active role in it, which is really the like one of the big reasons I want to talk about this. Is like, uh, I mean, this is horrible news for the Ukrainian workers. It's an awful move by the Ukrainian ruling class, but a lot of this is coming directly from the United States and its EU lapdogs. So, like, this is a project that the U.S. has wanted to implement in really all of the former Soviet republics, and it's now seizing on the opportunity of this war to do so, and it's really disgusting. Yeah. Well, and I guess with that thought, another thing that we're going to be doing a little follow up on, which was is speaking of disgusting. disgusting. (laughs) Yeah, incredibly disgusting is uh, Amazon killing one of their workers through negligence. Uh, And we had talked about this already, but we got a little bit more information. And uh, so the worker that we talked about, it was last week, right? Yes. Yeah. uh, Who was killed uh, by Amazon. Uh, his name was uh, Rafael Ronaldo Mota Frias. Uh, he was a 42-year-old father from the Dominican Republic who died of a heart attack uh, due to the sweltering heat and relentless pace of the working conditions at the Amazon facility. At, on the day that uh, he was killed, uh, there was no air conditioning, and the temperature of outside of the building, and they they don't have a, a calculation of inside, because I bet they would never put a thermometer inside those buildings, because mm-hmm. they fear the repercussions of people knowing how hot is it, it is in there. But outside, it was 92 degrees. And, uh, I mean... I don't know. We just wanted to make sure to to get a little bit more information on this. And, and Amazon is saying that it's it's just like not their fault. 
That's insane. I mean, those buildings, e- even outside of just a, a, a labor perspective, like those buildings trap heat. If it's 92 degrees outside, it's probably a hundred fucking degrees in there with people running around high lows running all of that different shit. Like, yeah. Like, cause well, cause that's the thing, like any in, an industrial operation like this, you've got a million electric motors mm-hmm. running in these places. Every single one of those is giving off waste heat. You have every single worker that's there gives off body heat. So if it's 92 degrees outside, it is almost certainly triple digits inside, especially on the upper floors of the building. And so, like, workers at that facility said that they have repeatedly asked Amazon to install fans at the facility because of the heat, and they have refused to do so. And that workers passing out from heat exhaustion at the facility is not uncommon. Like, one worker told the Daily Beast, quote, it's crazy because I was right there. I feel like Amazon as a whole could have done way more about the situation. They're trying to say he had a heart attack. Even if that was the case, everybody was saying it was too hot inside to be working, end quote. And and this, we, we talked about this, you know, last week, the Amazon continues to say, well, he had a heart condition. It has nothing to do with work, da, 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 da. But workers also point out that since his tragic passing, the company has started handing out bottles of water and electrolyte packets to some to people. And so that, of course, one worker quoted in this Daily Beast piece asked the obvious question, quote, why after his death have they started giving out bottled water if at our stations if the warehouse temperature had nothing to do with his death? And yeah. It's a I pretty mean, important question. Yeah. yeah. And 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 some and, and the Daily Beast folks had even found a message from on the the like Amazon specific message board for their workers where somebody had asked you know the question how many more of us have to die before Amazon realizes that these working conditions are trash like you know these workers are pointing out how bad the situation is and and so you know workers across Amazon have 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 poured out you know sympathy for this 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 guy who was tragically killed and the workers who are organizing with the ALU at the ALB1 warehouse just outside of Albany held a walkout last week on Wednesday in um, in memory of Motofrias uh, on this was on the 27th and demanding that the company be held accountable for his death and this is the same warehouse uh, we had. We talked about how they start. They just recently affiliated with the ALU, and right on time, Amazon has started holding captive audience meetings attacking the ALU at that warehouse. And organizers there say they have now reached forty percent signatures and will be uh, filing with the NLRB for an election date shortly. So that's, I mean, that's huge news. But there was one other piece from oh. that that came out today, which was just goofy. Uh, it, it's. So there was audio leaked to More Perfect Union today, the day we're recording, which is uh, Monday, August 1st, from that Amazon's union busters at this warehouse in Albany are alleging that the union is going to violate workers' privacy by collecting and selling their personal information. This is uh, <laughs> from Amazon. Amazon. The fucking saying. people who sell the, your ring footage to the police. Who, yeah. Who's the union going to sell the data to? Amazon? Like, <laughs> right. It doesn't make a fucking lick of sense. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're like, oh, well, you're giving them your, you're signing a union card, you're giving them your name and your address. They could sell that information to a third party. I'm like, you are Amazon. What are you, you are the third party who information gets sold to. What are you talking about? It's yeah, just, what are you saying? Like I'm, I'm suddenly going to get a wish notification on Facebook to join a <laughs> union. What the yeah. fuck do you mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, 
absolutely bizarre claim. Uh, and and one thing though that was good to note, like I know one of the reporters um, from More Perfect Union was posting, you know, in the thread about the leaked information, said that they had, you know. They've spoken with a bunch of the workers there who have talked about speaking up in meetings in response to that like point being like, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any <laughs> sense. So, I mean, it's really good that there's been pushback, but just seeing that claim was just like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's just absolutely absurd. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so there. in addition to uh, Amazon's absurdity, there has also been uh, an OSHA investigation into Motifreas' actual death, and the agency has, in addition to investigating his death, opened investigations at several other facilities across the country as part of a potential criminal investigation into widespread underreporting of injury and illness rates, which, you know, not that we have a lot of faith in OSHA on this show, but that's a really good sign because anybody who has even a passing familiarity with how to understand statistics should be able to tell that Amazon does routinely and chronically underreport injury and illness and has made warehouse work at least twice as dangerous for the people who work there. Uh, So because OSHA is fairly toothless, DOJ prosecutors have also become involved in the investigation uh, and are considering pursuing criminal charges, which is interesting because it's not like I have a ton of faith in the DOJ either, but when they set out to do something, they do often actually do it, which is an an interesting wrinkle in this. Yeah, like, I, I don't know that I have a ton of faith in this going, you know, anywhere monumental. Sure. But I was surprised to learn that the DOJ was actually getting involved with this. OSHA, not a surprise. OSHA's, uh, I mean, OSHA's supposed to be involved with this, but what's the most they're going to do is what, fine Amazon $10,000 or something? Right. They won't even notice. Like, Nothing. But the DOJ can actually hand down real criminal charges. I don't expect them to do that much because of how rigged our system is in favor of a company like Amazon, but it's definitely something worth keeping an eye on because like there are, uh, you know, the, 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 that's actually criminal charges can actually have some teeth to them yep. if they actually make it that far. So, yeah, so if, if you see in the news that they're dragging out a dude you've never heard of from an Amazon facility whose title is suddenly vice president of safety, uh, that's the agreement <laughs> that they came to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's the more likely scenario is right. some sort of a settlement that has happened behind closed doors and legally sealed and, yeah, all this other stuff. But yeah. so in addition to all this this week, we did have an interesting leak where a memo from inside Amazon detailing their plans to fight unionization at the company mm-hmm. uh, from back in May of last year. So this is like real early in like the ALU's organizing, like almost a year before they would actually win their election. So this is a period where Amazon was actually a little more focused on like the Teamsters organizing at their facilities. And there isn't anything in there that's necessarily I would like groundbreaking or anything, but it's just interesting to see the way they talk about about their anti-union push because they lay out a plan to try and build relationships with groups that I think people would, you know, otherwise maybe think, oh, I'm I wouldn't think this group would work with Amazon, as well as trying to improve Amazon's brand. And so I don't really think they've been successful in the second half of that. I I don't know anybody personally who thinks Amazon is like some wonderful place to work. Uh, I don't, I think most people are disabused of that notion. So there sure there might everybody. be a wired columnist left somewhere. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, you get to work around all these robots. How great are they? And then they like <laughs> well, refuse to publish the fact that the automated work ha- work uh, uh, warehouses almost said workhouses, but you know, what's uh, the difference? <laughs> yeah, six or one. Uh, the ones with the robots have a higher injury rate. But um, the thing that I think is really interesting about this is they specifically targeted local NGOs and community organizations that assist like people they're basically like reentry programs mm-hmm. for folks who are were formerly incarcerated and this is an inc- i hated reading this because this is like such know, an insidious too. like evil thing to do to try and like launder their reputation by helping quote unquote like people getting out of it being incarcerated by providing them jobs where you know you work them half to death like all the rest of their employees yeah, I mean, like, yeah. what, what, what is supposed to be the positive spin on this? Like, Amazon, it's better than jail. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is like when they try to run a heartwarming story that's like, this kid set up a lemonade stand to yes. pay for his cancer diagnosis. And it's like, fuck you. Give that kid <laughs> cancer treatment for free now. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just so gross because their, their plan is more or less predicated on the U.S. system that disenfranchises mm-hmm. fel- like felons, anybody who's gone through the criminal uh, quote-unquote justice system, and like makes it so much harder for them to get access to basic services, to get access to many jobs. And so then they, you know, they come and there's a quote from their memo that says, many former offenders do not qualify for federal benefits that can improve their lives and provide stability post-incarceration. This allows Amazon to highlight our benefit offerings while creating safer, thriving communities. Wow. Sounds like exactly what Starbucks was doing for a long time (laughs) with their benefits package, because none of that shit's offered by the federal government to American citizens at all. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's it's just uh, another thing about this is that by saying that they're going to be hiring formerly incarcerated people, this is going to be really easy for them to just be like, oh, yeah, but we can't pay them as much. And like, you know, to to basically say that, you know, oh, we're helping people, but really they're just going to use this to drive down wages. And not to say that, like, that these people shouldn't have work. They definitely should, but they should be paid the same as all other workers. And Amazon is most certainly not going to do that without pressure from the union. So, I mean, I don't know. It's just really disgusting to see them exploit these these people who have been yeah. just exploited by the U.S. government, and then they're just moving into the new, like, you know, fascist Amazon facility. You know, mm-hmm. you've been you've worked in the prisons for free, and now you get to work for barely enough to survive in the Amazon warehouse. Yeah, I'm sure if they move forward with a uh, version of this program, and they do hire these quote-unquote former offenders, and if we ever get a chance to look at what the average wage is among them versus the other Amazon workforce. It's going to be staggeringly low uh, because that's, of course, the angle Amazon is taking here. I just want to reiterate that, of course, these people are entitled, should be entitled to jobs, but they should be entitled to the same good jobs that are so fucking hard to find for anybody in this country right now. You know, we yeah, have. Abs- Absolutely. And the other thing that was gross in this, and this is this is not entirely new. People have probably heard about mm-hmm. this, which is Amazon's partnership with school districts, where they're basically tr- the, in, under the guise of basically being like, we are going to provide assistance to school districts in preparing their students for Job training the, program, the working world. We're going to provide free training programs. 
by trying to turn schools into like pipelines to work at Amazon. Like they, they, (sighs) they put out and in the memo, they have a quote that says this would be a partnership where Amazon's current and future needs would be taught at city and educational institutions. Stop fucking with public schools for the love of god this and they're letting uh veterans teach in florida oh, without yeah. a fucking degree mm-hmm. it's like okay that's a huge fuck you to all the teachers associations not only veterans but also veteran spouses yeah the the people who do the uh you will address me by my husband's rank <laughs> i make my husband stand at parade rest at chipotle so this class full of six-year-olds better stand at parade rest for me <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it it's the whole thing is just fucking disgusting. And I, but I think the the ultimate, the bottom line here is, is that just like no matter what sort of language they use, no matter how they couch it, whenever you see a company like Amazon or really pretty much any company doing some sort of initiative of outreach to the community or assisting, you know, people with reentry that is. Every single time, it is not an act of altruism. The purpose is to launder the reputation of the company while giving them access to easier pools of highly exploitable labor. Every single time. Well, yeah, because companies don't do things that don't expand their bottom line. Like, every action a company takes is about... Expanding the bottom line, whether it's today, tomorrow, ten years from now, whatever. Like, well, and they would, and I mean, usually this is done in a way that they say, "Oh, you should be so thankful that we trained you, and that's why you get such a low wage." And right. and basically hold that sort of education, like because honestly, job training programs are great. They can, yes. or they said they can be great. Right. I yeah. mean, like there are lots of unions that do retraining programs for people Absolutely. who work in ex- in like extractive industries, and those are super important programs that need to be expanded and invested in. But when they're specifically brought up by these profit-driven capitalists, it is always with the notion that they will then have power over these people that they've trained to reduce their wages or indoctrinate them into like the Amazon brand and become you know anti-union people because it's like, oh, no, Amazon is the pr- people who trained me or whatever, and still never addressing the fact that their surplus value is being extracted specifically for the uh, enrichment of the ruling class and has no real benefit to the wider society. I mean, once you, once you start letting corporations uh, have a say in what gets taught in schools, I'm sorry, that's just bald-faced fascism. That's just regular fascism. It's not even diet yeah. anymore. <laughs> like, there's Absolutely. no pretense at that point. So Yeah. You know. So, but... So as not to leave our torrent of horrific Amazon news on a too sour of a note, even with all of this union busting, all the lies, all the community manipulation, Amazon has not been able to crush the workers organizing for a union at their facilities. And we don't have a lot of information on this. I tried to find more, but there isn't a ton. But workers at the actual, the largest Amazon warehouse in the country uh, MQY1, which is just outside of Nashville, Tennessee, workers there have announced that they are organizing with the ALU last week. So, you know, seeing this spread to Kentucky, to uh, just outside Albany, to now the biggest warehouse in the the company, that's pretty awesome, especially considering, you know, we're seeing all the enormous resources being thrown at, at defeating the ALU. So I yeah. uh, want to leave folks on a high note. 
There are mo- there's more organizing going on. There is more stuff. There are more p- workers fighting back against the fascist Amazon. Absolutely. And speaking of more workers fighting back, we've got some good news to announce here, which is the union movement at Activision has now, uh, you know, I guess. What uh, what would I, I got to use video game terminology for this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is leveled up. There is now another union group that is organizing under the Games Workers Alliance name, and this is workers much like the, the folks at the ALB One warehouse for Amazon, also in the Albany area. Uh, these are these are folks at Blizzard Albany, which is a studio that was formerly called Vicarious Visions before it was acquired by Activision, and they announced the formation of their own union on Tuesday, July 19th. And this studio, which uh, I don't know if I had heard of them before, but they've worked on franchises like Guitar Hero, Crash Bandicoot, on Diablo, so they've worked on on quite a few you know major titles. And Fucking sick. Uh, titles fucking rad (laughs) fucking crack open an energy drink ass titles crash bandicoot and guitar hero good god (laughs) (laughs) i love that yeah and so uh, once again, the union group here is focusing on the QA team, much like at Raven Software. So uh, at this, this is a group of workers of about it's about twenty workers, and they did ask for voluntary recognition. They did not receive it in the like week long time frame they gave the company, and so they have applied for an official NLRB election. And uh, one of the organizers there, uh, Amazon, uh, uh, Amanda Laven, a associate test analyst with the company, told the Washington Post. I firmly believe that having the union is going to give us the power that we need to make our workplace better. It's very exciting to go public with it and hopefully be able to inspire others in the way we've been inspired by Raven and Starbucks and Amazon and all the unions that have come before us. Yeah. And I mean, like the fact that uh, that they did not respond to the voluntary recognition shows that they are already interested in acting in bad faith of the future uh, uh, neutrality agreement. And I think that this is kind of showing that even with the Microsoft neutrality agreement, which which really Activision should be like adhering to right now, if they really are planning on being part of Microsoft, uh, is to, to show that in the face of this, that they're not really actually the neutrality agreement doesn't have as much power as <laughs> as we would hope but in a twitter twitter thread announcing the formation of their union the workers said we created a union to empower ourselves and secure the following competitive and fair compensation pay transparency better benefits and improved health care coverage address uh, disparities in titles and compensation uh, to accurately recognize our contributions and responsibilities, establish transparent processes and lines of communication for addressing all workplace issues, including misconduct and retaliation, improve and improve the work-life balance of our workers, including establish reasonable protocols to address the demand of crunch time, which we, every time we talk about, uh, about, uh, about video game companies, crunch time is always one of the biggest issues because that's when workers end up working 80 hour weeks and end up sleeping in their vehicles or in the office. Mm-hmm. And, and those sorts of conditions are unacceptable. And the idea that the union is going to be fighting back against this, uh, this crunch uh, issue is, I think, going to be a really great organizing factor for for their union, especially just because if people have been through crunch, I'm sure that they know exactly why they need a union. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, the workers there have said that the, that they were inspired by the process at, at Raven Software for their organizing. Uh, and yeah, they're, they are affiliated with the CWA, like the other Games Workers Alliance groups. And, um, you know, unsurprisingly, the response from the company has been this boilerplate statement that said they, quote, deeply respect, end quote, the rights of the workers to organize, but that they think that their workers would be better off with a quote, direct relationship. I'm so fucking tired of boilerplate (laughs) statements. One of these days, someone's going to have to sneak in and turn that fucking boiler off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, they, so they've just announced it. They did participate in the walkout that uh, Activision Blizzard workers had, uh, you know, about a week ago. And one employee told WAPO uh, that if the executives at ABK want their workers to be productive, engaged, and invested in the success of their workplace, they must recognize and bargain in good faith with unions. Workers deserve to be treated well and compensated fairly for the work they do. And for too long, this has not been the case at Activision Blizzard, end quote. And I think to emphasize what the truth of this worker statement was the fact that they felt the need and I'm sure they were right to do this, to ask to remain anonymous mm-hmm. when being quoted by WAPO. So, I mean, I think that tells you about the probably justified concern that they have about retaliation from the company. Yeah. Well, with that, we're actually going to be doing something that we don't get to do very often, which I think is very exciting. Uh, We're actually going to cover a little bit about the UAW convention that's been going on, where we've talked about in uh, our Rank and File Part 2, the one-member, one-vote that was put in through the UAW in the face of much corruption by the, the actual administration that is actually still in power. And uh, and what is coming out of that convention right now? So the past week they have uh, they have begin they've begun their convention, and uh, while workers don't get to vote into, on the new leadership, like the actual people who replace the people in leadership, until later this year, there have been a, some victories and also some betrayals uh, in the convention so far. Yeah. So. Largely, you know, I've been following a lot of this via, like, the UAWD has done a lot of great reporting on their own, but then also, you know, like, the Detroit Free Press, Detroit News have had people, you know, there. One of the things that the UAWD did point out, and because, you know, we've talked about on the show a bunch of times how there is a new insurgent independent labor movement growing in Mexico, and a lot of that is at car park plants, so it has a direct relationship with a lot of the work that, you know, the United Auto Workers Union in the United States does. And UAWD has themselves been in support of the various unions that have been growing there, Cynthia, Snidus, the the other independent unions. And they had asked the UAW leadership to invite activists from those new unions to the UAW convention to show solidarity so they could have, you know, like international discussions between their unions, how they could support the independent movement. And they didn't even get a response from the leadership. Like, they didn't even get a no. They just got no answer whatsoever. And so, like, the UAWD put out a statement saying, maybe Ray Curry, does, who's the president of the UAW right now, uh, doesn't want delegates to hear how these workers got rid of corruption in their union. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's a very telling statement. And, I mean, I do think that they're afraid of that. When, they, when you know, if the Cynthia organizers were up there and they like show examples of concessionary contracts, how the union isn't actually sticking up for the workers, the the old um, company union, and to to have the workers at UAW be like, huh, 
I'm seeing some parallels. Maybe we need <laughs> someone to come in and reform our union, and uh, maybe that's the UAWD. And I mean, with that, you can actually see some of the initiatives by UAWD actually making it uh, to pass. Uh, one of the the things, which you know, there's a little bit to this story. There originally uh, the uh, strike pay was not going to start until day eight of a strike, which was meant to discourage strikes. And they actually got that pushed back so that it starts on day one of the strike, which is really great. Um, yeah, and then win. another thing that happened was is they want, they increased uh, strike pay from 400 to $500 a week. Now, this comes with a caveat because at the end, near the end of the convention, after a lot of the delegates had left, the administration just rolled that back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was, it took me a bit to figure out what, how exactly they did that. I guess basically what happened is the executive board recalled the delegates to be like, Hey, so you already voted on this, but here's why we think it's a bad idea and why we think you should overturn your own vote. And like, this is after a lot of delegates had already left because they thought that the deliberations were already over. And basically the executive board tried to argue that, they had already increased strike pay to $400, which was coincidentally what the UAWD had suggested and that they uh, was going to have as a plank at the convention. But the administration caucus kind of tried to get out ahead of it by passing that beforehand. But their argument that it would cost the union too much seems kind of to be blown out of the water when you point out that they have an $825 million strike fund right now. So the idea that that they could pay $400 a week for strike fund benefits, but not $500 a week. I don't know. That doesn't, I don't think the math works on that. <laughs> that no, it absolutely doesn't. Hold doesn't. Of, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that, it was really unfortunate because they had passed actually pretty overwhelmingly a resolution earlier in the convention to raise it again from the previous, like 275, which is mm-hmm. what it was last year to 400, which is what the UAWD had recommended, and then even above that to 500. But no, no, no. The the executive board called people back and said, oh, we can't do that. That's too expensive. This, by the way, comes after the executive board pushed through a resolution to raise the salaries of everyone on the executive board. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, right, basically creating a, uh, an, a parachute, a golden parachute for the union people who, because they're afraid that they're going to get voted out. And so they want some sort of compensation for when they finally get their ass kicked to the curb, which they should have done. Yeah. So, I mean, there was a quote here for the, from the Detroit Free Press from a, a, one of the delegates, Daniel Vicente, who after this said, I have no respect for anyone who sits on the international executive board after today. I'm disgusted with the whole thing. Yeah. So, I mean, surprised. I would be, I, I would also be, I don't know if the audio is out there, but I'd be curious to hear what the actual arguments are that like 400 is fine, sure. but 500 is not because it seems like you would really have to be pulling some incredibly sophistic bullshit to, to, to get people to believe that. Um, and then there were also a, a series of, of nominations that happened because the, the convention is actually the nominating process for candidates for union leadership. Uh, workers will have an opportunity to vote for them in October. Seven candidates for union president were nominated during the convention, including, of course, incumbent and head of the administration caucus, Ray Curry. Uh, and then you also have the UAWD who announced their nominees for president on a platform of, quote, no concessions, no corruption, no tears. And their nominees yeah. were Sean Fain and Secretary Treasurer, oh, 
for their nominees for president, Sean Fain, and their nominee for secretary treasurer, Margaret Mock. Uh, Fain served for years as a skilled trades committee person before becoming a UAW international representative. He has consistently opposed the concessionary two-tier contracts that workers at John Deere, Case New Holland, and many other facilities have been fighting against. Mock previously served as treasurer and committee person for local 961 at the Marysville Axle plant. Yeah. So, I mean, some ups and some downs with the convention, like the, the strike pay getting raised to $400, which actually happened before the convention. Mm -hmm. That's an unambiguous good. Like that's a, that's a very good thing. It's bullshit that they blocked the further increase to 500. And I honestly, like if I'm the UAWD, I'm not going to stop talking about that because mm -hmm. it's an, it's such a perfect example of what they're fighting against with the problems of the entrenched bureaucracy. there, working against the workers interest and working in a, in a, in, a, in more of a way that's like, we never want to strike unless we absolutely have to. And even then we want to make it as short as possible so we can get a concessionary contract and go back to, "Quote unquote normal." Well, and it, to it, 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 labor peace, it, and it's yeah, exactly labor peace, and it's so telling that their ideas for ways to make shorts or to make strikes shorter is to punish the workers that they're supposed to be representing for being on right. strike, and not for punishing the company, which is what you should be fucking doing as mm -hmm. a union. Like it's like it seems yeah. like a primary contradiction. But yeah, I will it, say well, though, like just for the UAWD, like the the in addition to getting to that $400 mark which that was a win mm -hmm. but then the resolution to get strike benefits paid on day 1 instead of day 8 that's yeah. a big win because like if you're a worker at a UAW local and maybe your local leadership isn't super into the idea of having a strike and so you're trying to convince you know your coworkers no we really do need to have one that hurdle of we're not going to get any benefits for the first week that's a real hurdle <laughs> like to know that like you're going to go on strike and for that first week you're not going to get anything yeah until day 8 of well, the strike. Well it also discourages like shorter strikes for for mm -hmm. like smaller issues which is one of the ways that you actually build up the power of Absolutely. your movement and one of the things that we talk about in our rank and file episodes is like the structure tests of like hey can we do small actions? And I mean, if people are afraid to even do small actions, you're never going to actually engage the workers and get them involved in the union to build more power to actually have those larger strikes, which end up being over months, to be incredibly effective because you need that cohesive union mentality in a lot of the workers in order to actually make those really successful. And I mean, yeah. they are able to do that in some cases when they know for a fact that it's going to be a long strike. And so they can do those big contract strikes. But when it comes to what if there is a single plant that refuses to do something like put air conditioning in or something like that, the workers are going to be discouraged from striking if they're not going to get any strike pay if they think they're going to get a win within a week. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that was another big win. So, yeah, it's I do think that from this the you know stuff coming out of this convention it does seem like there's a good amount of support for the UAWD but it also does seem like there's still a lot of support especially from like maybe some of the more like traditional quote unquote like sure. locals in the UAW for the administration caucus it also really seems like there's a bit of like an age divide 
there you where uh, younger workers who are on the lower tier of so many mm-hmm. of these two-tier contracts are the ones that understandably tend to be a lot more pro-reform, whereas some of the workers who are maybe on some of the older legacy contracts, maybe they're just a few years from retirement, are more like, look, what you know, yeah, we got issues, but like, I don't know, everything seems more or less all right. The most corrupt guys got thrown out of the union by the feds anyway. So, uh, I don't know. seems mostly fine. So I we'll see what happens with the election in October. Honestly, I think the administration caucus gave the UAWD a ton of ammunition to point to people and be like, look at this bullshit. We should add $500 a week. People voted for $500 a week. And then the executives came in and took it away. So like, I think they've got a lot to campaign on, but it is also the first time that members are having an opportunity to do this, you know, uh, one member, one vote direct election of the leadership. So we'll see. Uh, I mean, certainly very hopeful for the UAWD, but I think it's fixing all the problems in the UAW, like any giant organization like this is going to be a long process. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, and in another long process that we have been covering for months and months and months, we will move to our Starbucks segment where yeah, we're going right. to, you know, obviously we're going to, we've been front loading these with some of the more uh, egregious examples of Amazon's union busting, and we're not going to change that trend this week. Um, but uh, we'll get to some of the really cool stuff, I promise. This week, Starbucks started by firing two of its workers organize two of its worker organizers at Scottsboro, Alabama, in retaliation for union organizing. The workers were fired on July 23rd, just two days before the ballots in their store went out for their election. And this brings the total of uh, to at least 57 workers who have been illegally fired for organizing since the union movement began, along with the 252 filed ULPs covering 400. 170 different specific instances of illegal actions by the company and i mean this has led the nlrb to sue the company in 18 different cities so far this these numbers are only growing and i think that starbucks is really doing their best to hit a high score on this shit yeah, well, they uh, they definitely moved forward with their insane plan to just close 16 Starbucks stores. Uh, that happened on Sunday, July 31st, last weekend. Uh, and this was, of course, as we mentioned previously, under the cover of concerns about crime, uh, which, as we pointed out previously, is insane, uh, particularly considering that the rate of stores within these closings that were unionized was something like an order of magnitude higher than the rate of unionized stores in general. Uh, so Starbucks is... Uh, completely unwilling to put their foot on the brake and is continuing to torpedo their what little reputation they have left. Uh, and in retaliation against this, workers on strike in Chicago posted wanted posters for Howard Schultz, listing him as, quote, wanted, alive at the bargaining table. <laughs> you have to bargain at all to be bargaining in good faith, which is like... I love the the energy of specifying wanted alive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, the... I lo- that that one got a, a a very big laugh from me when I saw the person who tweeted that out. That ex- excellent work by the the workers in in Chicago. Mm-hmm. That's a fantastic the the wanted posters and 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 like speaking of like the resistance to this. I mean the you know strikes continue all over the country with with workers at at Starbucks. And a big part of that has come from, you know, as we've discussed previously, the company's plan to roll out new benefits for workers at uh, non-unionized stores claiming they can't 
provide them to unionized workers, despite the fact that the union has said repeatedly and in public that they are happy to accept those, you know, increased benefits for the workers. So the company continues to lie to people. But weirdly enough, there is one aspect of that that has actually worked in the union's favor, which is that in addition to the benefits that the company's trying to roll out, with, you know, to try and get workers to be like, you don't need a union, we're improving things, don't worry about it. They've also instituted a new policy where workers are required to show availability for 150% of the hours that they plan to work, which, I mean, more or less means that these workers are functionally being required to be on call for for no additional pay. And the one silver lining here is that because that's not a benefit. That's like a change to working conditions that workers would not want. They actually cannot implement that at the unionized stores because the union doesn't, hasn't agreed to it. And so it, the, the thing that surprised me so much about this is not that Starbucks would do this. Cause I mean, of course they would, it's fits perfectly in line with their general behavior and treatment of their workers. It's just so funny that at the same time, they're being like showering workers with new benefits, quote unquote, mm-hmm to be like, look, you don't need a union. They're at the same time can't help themselves from also being like, ooh, we have a new way that we can purposefully short staff our our places. We'll force all of our workers to show 150% availability for their work hours. And yet, I mean, in that same vein, the union is still able to protect their workers from that policy. Yeah. Well, and one of the ways that uh, the unions are fighting back is we talked about the indefinite strike that was called for at the 874 Com Street store in Boston. They have been on strike for two weeks, and uh, they're going to continue to strike basically in because of Starbucks's retaliation and uh, many of the work conditions that have gone on there. And, I mean, even today, we are seeing these strikes continue. I mean, like, there's a, a coordination of five stores that are striking today in Boston and uh, and Worcester and Brookline and and the, I mean like we're this is the first we're we're reporting this on the first of of, uh, of August and so I mean unfortunately this will not be out in time for people to go out there and show solidarity but keeping up to date on this news I mean you can also jump in the Discord because we keep this stuff in there but uh, we're seeing a lot of strikes at, at Starbucks because of these uh, this incredible union busting that uh, Starbucks and Howard Schultz are rolling out. Well, I mean, any worker who works for Starbucks or any worker who has a passing familiarity with labor law knows that Starbucks assertion that they cannot give these benefits to unionized stores is just insane and is not based in any kind of fact at all. So to see them taking action over it is uh, really reassuring. It seems like these workers are not going to let anything get past them. So, yeah. And they're. The the strike tracker from the like Labor Research Institute, I think at Cornell, mm-hmm. um, tracked at least twenty strikes at Starbucks locations just in the last month in July. So you know this is a movement that is not just sitting around waiting for the NLRB to do something. The workers are actually taking this into their own hands, and that's really encouraging to see. And again, as always, despite the repression, the winds keep 
piling up, folks. You know, uh, on Tuesday, July 26th, workers in Pittsburgh and Farmingville, New York, won their union elections. Then on Wednesday and Friday last week, we saw wins in Barstow, California, Riverside, California, Clarksville, Indiana, and Dallas, Texas. And that win in Clarksville, Indiana was actually the first union win in the state, so that's a big one. Mm -hmm. And the win in Dallas was the first one in that city and was a unanimous win at their Mockingbird Station store. That's really big. Well, and uh, the the double wins in California are great, too, because California has had a a weirdly bad track record on on Starbucks union elections despite still most of them winning yeah it's it's something like the average because that's the thing like because these win totals bring the national level to 207 unionized stores and an election win rate of over 82 percent the weird thing with california is their win rate is like only 60 percent right right right. so but yeah i mean nationwide despite there maybe being the volume of wins is a little lower than it was earlier in the year keeping the win rate over 80 percent still well well above average so Mm -hmm. you know continued incredible track record by starbucks workers united and speaking of above average where you've got your (laughs) meme review with above average quality memes (laughs) (laughs) that's right that's that's the that's the work stoppage promise folks we cannot promise you the best memes on the web that'd be really difficult there's a lot of competition for that but we can promise above average quality that's right right. our our first meme is actually a meme that multiple people have sent to me this week i assume because they know that i'm very interested in labor issues but i must (laughs) also assume because they know that i do intend to become a model trains guy once i reach old age not now (laughs) In like 30 <laughs> years. But uh, so this is a tweet from at night offices, stolen velour. <laughs> great, great <laughs> handle. It's uh, a great name. It says, usually I'm strictly ideologically opposed to my dad's model railway obsession, but even I have to admit this is adorable. Hashtag up the RMT. And then it has a text from their father, whose name is presumably John Davies. It says, it's a photo of, of pit, little miniature picketers on a little miniature <laughs> railway uh, strike line. And it says, pickets out on my layout today. I'll train stopped <laughs> yeah, it's just this cute little the photo of a, of a model train like at the station and picketers and uh, just this model town and just like yeah this guy he's starting to get it yeah yeah well i i love the idea because i feel like for a model train person the joy is that you get the trains you get the dioramas you get it looking exactly the way you want it and then you get to kind of stand there and be like yeah these trains are moving people and products around but like <laughs> to, to to be a model train person and to to make little picketers and then stand back and be like yeah these trains aren't moving anything around today <laughs> that's beautiful like i love that <laughs> yeah Incredibly wholesome this energy. This is like uh, uh, those single-player role-playing games. It's like a one of those journaling games, but you're just like some dad in a basement with a big tra- model train, like <laughs> doing your different role-playing. Yeah. I, I love it. <laughs> so. Our next one, this is one of those ones where they like use 17 different fonts. <laughs> so it's just like a multicolor background with a couple of clip art pictures in here. So it's just got coworker. Comrade, that's your co-captive. You are both being held hostage by your oppressive wages and labor exploitation. Proletariat gang, rise up. (laughs) (laughs) I love the proletariat gang, rise up, looks like a meme tag. Like, that's the name of the page or something. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, because it's it's like stretched weird. Like, Mm -hmm. the emojis are really tall. 
And also, the photo of the people sh- like shaking hands is really low quality. And, uh, <laughs> yes. Like, there's f- f- a face posted over one of them, and then next to proletariat game game ri- uh, gang rise up is like a like a very clearly communist uh, like style like sun in the background with a guy with a hammer about to hit the anvil. Pretty cool stuff. <laughs> and then. Yeah. Um, then we, the next one we have our uh, we have to fit one of these uh, t- text only memes in here uh, at least once per episode, and this one is by uh, at uh, cat cat house cat thousand cat thousand cat thousand oh yeah yeah, yeah. anyway uh, the the text on this was sorry I can't come in today I'm encumbered and can no longer run or dodge and attacks consume much more stamina <laughs> and I just. <laughs> <laughs> like this kind of crossover I, like, this between one video is games. It's very simple, yeah. but I appreciate the stupid joke. <laughs> your boss Anybody? is like, take off your armor. And it's like, before coming to work? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anybody who has played a, uh, a like Elder Scrolls game has dealt with the pain of this. And going to work is a hell of a lot harder. So, yeah, well, I mean, like, I'm going to be honest with you. I just started playing Elden Ring recently. That's the first game where, like, the equip load actually means something that I've ever played. Like, there's no weight in Diablo 2. You can carry as many of anything as you want. Nothing will happen to you. <laughs> Herodric cubes inside Herodric cubes inside Herodric cubes. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, what we need to do is figure out how ULPs can be used to like encumber businesses. Because mm. <laughs> at this point, Starbucks wouldn't be able to move anywhere. <laughs> yeah, well, if you really want to get one over on your boss, what you really need to do is learn his attack patterns and identify vulnerable spots. <laughs> That's that's right. You got to figure. You got to you got to roll into them, yeah. not away from them. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So the next one is a a Sarah Scribbles comic. This one that I think most people can probably relate to. I think um, it's your standard four panel. It's just titled "How It Feels to Be Alive Lately," and so it's got Sarah there just sitting there in the middle of presumably a, a park or a field, and it's just sitting on a blanket labeled "Existing." And then the second panel, you see this person just, and then I moved away from the mic. (laughs) Sorry. So on the second panel, you just see like somebody's head kind of peek over across the panel. And and then the third one, he leans in and goes, that'll be $70. (laughs) And then the last one is just to zoom in on on Sarah's face as she starts to tear up. Okay. (laughs) It's very true. They want to make it so that, it costs money to be anywhere. It's illegal to be poor. Yeah. Well, and like the, my landlord just put a, a sign out front trying to get new tenants and they were advertising the price of rent. And I was like, hey, that's $400 more than I pay. So when my lease goes in March, I can expect to be paying at least that. And then also I used to be able to go to Aldi and spend less than $100 and fill the card up. Now I fill the card up halfway is 130 bucks. Fuck you! <laughs> ridiculous, oh, ridiculous. Man. This brought this 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 segment brought to you by inflation, yeah, uh, aka corporate profiteering. But yeah, I mean, this whole thing, I mean, reminded me of that classic tweet that it's just like, damn, why is being alive so damn expensive? I'm not even having a good time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and then I mean, speaking of being, I mean, it being illegal to be poor. Our next meme is actually a. A, a memification of a real life story that happened where I believe it was in a city in Texas. 
Yeah. Uh, that I think uh, Dallas actually. Yeah, that armed uh, an armed leftist group. I I think I think they're a leftist group was actually uh, defending houseless people's tent encampment uh, from police. And this is a memification of it with the Chiefs, like the big buff Chiefs and then a crying little cop Chiefs as well. And the the big buff one is like a a red red bandana wearing like redneck style uh, with a with a gun. Uh, and says, uh, these people are my na- are, are our neighbors. Fuck off. And the cop Cheebs is like, we're here to protect property values with carceral punishment. And just like, <laughs> I I love it when uh, when people fight back against the fucking cops trying to uh, criminalize people who are just trying to fucking exist. Mm-hmm. The the funniest thing though about I mean the meme itself is only like funny if you know about the story and but like the. St- the backlash in the media over this was just so it's a very good illustration of like the emptiness of the supposed values of different parts of the ruling class, because you know, it's, it's Texas. You have so many of the people in every position of power. there talking about how, you know, firearms ownership and the right to carry is such an integral part of being an American. Mm -hmm. But the second that you have people like, openly carrying not like they weren't fighting the police or anything they were just there to be like oh you want to force these people in tents to leave well we're gonna give them the time to get their stuff and and take it with them rather than you just throwing it in the trash and violently evicting them which is that's really all the event ended up turning out to be but then you got all these apoplectic (laughs) insane op-eds about how this is proof of the lawlessness of american society today (laughs) and and all this shit it's like oh weird it's funny how like the ruling classes in like the south are, are, are always in favor of gun ownership until it's you know the oppressed using it for their own protection. Exactly. Well, I mean, the classic example is the Black Panthers, right? right? Like you got the the fucking NRA to agree to, uh, you know, relatively modest gun safety legislation, basically because they saw radical black activists with guns and they were like, that's not what we meant. And it's like, good. Right. It's good that that's not what you meant because it's actually good and we don't want you, you know, yeah. <laughs> on our side, basically. <laughs> Absolutely. And this is all like, under the whole thing is under the uh, the disgusting like genocidal language they use for this the way that the homeless are treated in the US where they're talking about they these these criminal activists prevented the police from cleanse i mean cleaning this yeah. area that these people were in and it's just like uh, okay also no, i get what you think of these people what the yeah. fuck is a criminal activist <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, i'm i'm doing this robbery for Black Lives Matter. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's insane. Uh, it's getting wild out there, folks. Uh, stand up for your local homeless population because your local politicians certainly aren't going to fucking do mm-hmm. it. Yeah, absolutely. And with that, we will wrap for this episode. We want to thank you all for listening. And if you'd like to support the show a little bit more, you can go to patreon.com slash workstoppage and give us $5 a month. You get access to all of our Patreon episodes, which are there's overtime episodes on organizing rank and file unions. There's a history of the repressive state apparatus. There's all sorts of really great uh, content in there. If you can't find that stuff as a patron in the Discord, which is free for everyone, there is a dues payer channel for Patreon members. And in the description of that, there are links to each of the styles of, of overtime episodes and shop floor discussions. Another thing that you could do is leave us a 
five-star review somewhere. There are no reviews on our Facebook page. Please, we could use a couple there. Yeah. Uh, follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain. Follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. And listen to Beep Beep Lettuce and Red Game Table. Oh, yeah, Red Game Table. I'm on that now. Hey, yeah. <laughs> uh, they, we just released the first episode in the new season. And, uh, you know, there's going to be lots of really great spooky adventures that we're going to be on. So check out Red Game Table. And uh, as always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity out there. Solidarity, everybody. Mm-hmm.